0: Kwe Tanse Sego Anibu Kwe Nin Deluizi Pam pometer, and I am the host of this show, The Warrior Life. This podcast is a show about living the warrior life, a lifestyle that focuses on decolonizing our minds, bodies, and spirits, while at the same time revitalizing our cultures, traditions, laws, and governing practices. It's also about asserting and living our sovereignty all over Turtle Island. And one of the ways that we do this as Indigenous peoples is to occupy places and spaces that have been denied to us, making sure that our people are represented in such a way that our children, Children can see themselves reflected everywhere and anywhere. Today's guest is someone that has inspired me since the first day I heard his name. The Honorable Graydon Nicholas is from Tobik First Nation and he was the first Native person to earn a law degree in New Brunswick. Then he was the first Native person to be appointed to the provincial court in New Brunswick And then the first native person to be appointed as Lieutenant Governor of New Brunswick. I mean he has also spent so many years working with First Nations and grassroots people on the ground on all of the issues that are important to us and along the way of course has won a, a large number of awards including the Order of New Brunswick, the Order of Canada, the New Brunswick Human Rights Awards and many honorary degrees. Today, the Honourable Graydon Nicholas serves as the Chancellor of St. Thomas University, the same university where I got my Native Studies degree. Welcome to the show, Your Honour, the Honourable Graydon.
1: Well, thank you very much, Pam. It's a pleasure for me to be here on this program with you and uh, commend you for uh, having this kind of medium for our people.
0: Well, thank you. I'm I'm really excited to have you here so that everybody else gets to hear all of your knowledge and wisdom and experiences that I've been able to hear throughout my life. So maybe before we get started, you could introduce yourself in the way that you like to.
1: Uh, well, uh, my name is Graydon Nicholas. I'm, uh, I am was born in a pretty large family on uh, my community. We call it Negotkoginar language, which is Willistigo Week. And uh, so we're brought up on reserve. My mom and dad had uh, 12 kids. And uh, two children died as infants. And then the rest of us as survivors, we were uh, seven guys, seven men, and uh, three sisters. And uh, so we lived on reserve. I was brought up in my language. It was a Catholic family. And uh, I didn't learn a word of English, I don't think, until I started school in grade one. And I was only, uh, what, five years old at the time. And uh, I still remember very, (laughs) very... Uh I guess in a way of nostalgia of how I started school. Uh it, it kind of went like this. Uh the night before my older brothers and sisters would gone to school said uh, here's what they would say in my language. So what did just say in my language? Uh I the night before, my brothers and sisters said, tomorrow morning, you're going to go to school for the first time. And then the teacher there is going to ask you, uh, what is your name? And when she asks you your name, you tell her that your name is Graydon. And that's the first time I ever knew my name was Graydon, because in the large family of I mean, indigenous communities, you're either somebody's brother or sister, or, you know, your, your cousin to so and so. And we all had nicknames. So uh, sure enough, next morning, you know, I got up real excited going to school, and the teacher, who was a nun, asked my name. I answered, Braden. And then she said, uh, What's your last name? I had no clue what the last name was. I mean, on reserve you're someone, but you're, you're a son of somebody, or. And I had no <laughs> idea what the last name was, so I couldn't answer it. I just went like this, just shrugged, because I'd never heard of it. And uh, so, anyway, so she went on and. And my friend sitting next to me was a guy, my cousin. And she asked him, What is your name? He response was Chucky. And Chucky was a nickname we had for him. She says, No, your name can't be Chucky. I don't have anybody on this list called Chucky. I mean, Chucky is sort of some for some non natives is a short name for Charles, right? But he he said, Well, no, he says, she said, No. On the list, your, your name must be Martin. Martin. Yeah, I you kind of and I and I kind back to him and says, Well, uh in my language just say come on with the gaki you better give a good response to this teacher. And so anyway, so teacher says, uh, Martin, what's your last name? And he looked at me and I just I didn't know what he was either. Just, Martin, Martin, Martin. And he was came a bit of a crusty background, you know. <laughs> <laughs> Martin the hell with it. So, <laughs> so needless to say, Martin and I stayed in school first day, and for <laughs> for whatever way we behaved. So uh, when I arrived home um, late, uh, you know, like uh, school was done by three thirty, and it wasn't that far from where we lived. So my mother says, "Oh, how come it took you so long to get to get home?" And I told her, "Well, uh, the teacher asked me to stay there." And she says, uh, for what is it? I don't know. She, There was my cousin, Turkey, and I were asked to go to well We're the only ones. So anyway, she goes down and sees the nun. and says, what's going on? How come you, this happened? She says, well, he didn't know his last name. My mother says, how do you expect a five-year-old to know his last name when we don't even mention it in our family? What's the matter with you? My, like my mother was a ribbon advocate to have on your side. So <laughs> so anyway, uh, she says, he doesn't even know his last name. He, he just remembered his first day from last week. So, so that's how I started school in grade one back in, back in 1951, you know? And uh, so as a result, at the end of grade one, uh, cause uh, I, I didn't know how to read. I actually failed. I failed grade one, you know, and when I got back into, and uh, my mother says, they have a report card. I said, oh yeah, they gave me this. So she looks at it and I saw it, but I really couldn't read what was it all about. So, she says, oh, no. I said, oh, what happened? You know, in our language, I say, what happened? You know, so he says, you didn't pass. I said, I didn't pass what? He says, well, you got to go back to grade one again in the fall. I said, oh, is that right? How come? And she would say, in other words, you don't know how to read. And that's true. I did not know how to read. And I could see words, but I just couldn't read in a sentence. So, and when I went back a second time in the fall of 52, my uh, and school was grade one and grade two and kind of grade three together, right? And so Chucky, my friend, was had made it through. He was actually in grade two and I was in grade <clears throat> one, but he was set together. And he said, uh, in my language, In my language, I'll teach you so that you'll know how to read. Oh, I, so I said, well, even then, you know, that was good. So actually, he was my first tutor. You know? <laughs> so, <laughs> <laughs> anyway, that's the early story of, of how uh, my educational experience began <laughs> in, uh, in September 19, uh, 1951. So.
0: It's hard to believe, you know, it's not even that long ago, but to have that experience and you know that just reminds me about your community because being from New Brunswick, you know our communities are so small, Let's like how powerful there's so many powerful people in your community, who are today advocates of protecting uh, yeah, your yeah. language or advocates of human rights at the international level like I mean, you just come from a really powerful community.
1: Well, that that must be that must be our creator's design. <laughs> yes <Yeah.
0: laughs> Even if you do feel grade one because you don't know your last name.
1: <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So anyway. Oh
0: my goodness. Well You know, one of the things I love about this podcast is I get to talk to some of my heroes, like people that I have considered mentors and looked up to my whole life. And, you know, you you are one of those people um, for lots of different reasons. When I was younger to learn the fact that, you know, I hadn't met you yet, but there was actually a Native person who earned a law degree and that was possible. You know, like that was something that that kind of planted the first seed in my mind that that was even possible before then, you know, there was only certain areas that we worked in. It wasn't in those other areas and it kind of planted the seed that, you know, maybe I could be a lawyer someday. And then, you know, as the world would have it, here I am at St. Thomas university taking native law in my native studies program and I get to learn from you. (laughs) And by that time, you know, you had already long been a lawyer and I think you had already been a, um, appointed as a provincial court judge by that by that time. And and I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about some of the challenges you might have faced being the first Native person to graduate from law school. I mean, you wouldn't have had the usual kind of supports that Native people do today.
1: Uh, that's true. And uh, just before I answer that part, you know, Pam, I got to, like, I I went to um, St. Francis Xavier University wow. in Nova Scotia. And it was my older brother who actually taught me to go in there because my in high school, I was in the Air Cadets. And I was thinking of uh, Royal Military College, actually, uh, to go there because I was interested in science and engineering, very good in math and science. So that's what I actually wanted to do. And uh, I had to go through the usual tests to do that. And before I did the final one in Halifax, uh, my older brother asked me, says, have you thought of where you want to go to school? I said, yeah, I'm thinking of Royal Military College. Mm-hmm. and uh, Military is a career. And he says, uh, why? So I told him, I love sports, I love science and all this stuff. He says, geez, there's a real good school in Nova Scotia. You know? <laughs> I said, oh, what's it called? <laughs> he says, Francis Xavier University. So I said, oh, is that right? Uh, he said, because he had gone there two years. And and so, it, and I said, well, I don't know. Maybe I should apply. And stay. He said, yeah, you should apply there. So I didn't, I got into San Fe. And uh, so in my last year of university in, in you know, 67, 68, uh, there was a, they, back then they called it teaching on Indian issues. They had on campus about sort of like March, I'm sorry, March of that year. And so I went because my friend Gordy McDonald was Mcmo from, uh, I think it was from Ember too, if I recall Gordy. And he, we were both in science together. I said, Gordy, why don't we go listen to this? See what's, maybe we'll learn something, you know, because they're both science students. And so, sure enough, we went there. And that's the very first time both of us ever heard of treaty rights, Indian Act. And all of these other relationships that, uh, that they, on the community you would, you would have, I mean, neither of us were ever interested in law. And uh, so we went to listen to it. And it just so happened that uh, there was a newspaper article in the Cape Breton Post. And Gordy and I always went to have coffee, you know, (laughs) back then. We had maybe, I don't know, $10 a month for spending money. So we, what we would do is we would pull our money, at least have a cup of coffee and a donut or something, you know, so we could do this every day. (laughs) And uh, so we went for, and he says, gee, look at this article from the Cape Breton Post, you know, there's this guy from the community there who is going to be sent to prison for four years. I said, for what? What did he do? He said, well, he, he, uh, he burned his own house. I said, what? He burned his own house? And you can go to jail for that? I mean, we didn't know. We were very naive. And he says, yeah, here it is, writing the article. So I read that article, and it's identified him as a Mi'kmaq guy. And the circumstances were that he had an old house where his family lived, and a new house had, was being constructed for his family to replace that one. So anyway, the, the bureauc- bureaucracy, I guess, wouldn't allow them to move in. So he figured if I burn my house, they got to move into a new house. And that's what he did. So it seems to me pretty logical here, you know, <laughs> so, <laughs> You had to provide for your family. Well, then I told Gordy, I said, well, gee, Gordy, my mother gave me a copy of the Federal Indian Act when I went to university. I've never opened it, but I've got it. And she told me when I left in the fall of 64, I'm going to give you this little yellow copy of the Indian Act, which was back then. And he said, I want you to read that and come and help our people in the future. Well, I always say, like a good son, yes, mom, thank you. I never looked at it until this ridiculous situation. <laughs> <laughs> so that night I studied that, read that thing cover to cover, and I couldn't believe what I was reading. I said, well, dude, there's a provision here, Gordy, You're right under the Indian Act, which says if an Indian destroys his own per- personal property, he's subject to a fine, I don't know, maybe $100 and maybe a week in jail. I said, I don't put that how could those people be so stupid? Have never heard of the guy? <laughs> 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 you know, are you a student? You have all these. I said, "My goodness, didn't the judge know anything? Didn't the police?" Didn't? Anyway, all these questions were in my mind, and uh, I—that I, was only my introduction to a thing called law, and I kind of forgot about it. And when I graduated in '68, uh, I went back to my community to work, and then uh, my brother, who was a chief at the time, said, "They're looking for some teachers downtown." I said, oh, is that right? So I went to go see my old principal. And I said, I understand you're looking for teachers. Uh, He said, yeah, we're looking for teachers in science and math. I said, well, Jesus, that's right up my alley. That's my major. Uh, Where's the school? He said, well, there are are two schools, one up in Plaster Rock and one in Perth Andover, which is Southern Victoria, which is where the kids from our reserve went. I said, oh, gee, I went to the principal of both schools. And then I said, okay, I'll teach in Perth Andover, Southern Victoria. And he said, Well, okay, sure, we'll take you, but you have to have a temporary teacher's license. I said, Oh, where do you get that? But you have to go to summer school at UNB and uh, you'll take two full courses and uh, you do that three years and then you've got six credits and then you'll get your degree after that. I said, Okay, good enough. So in July of 2000, and, uh, 2000 uh, 1968, uh, I went to summer school took my courses on teaching and all this stuff that you have, the regulatory things, the law and everything. I was, well, Lord, first time ever so well organized. <laughs> so, so and then just when we finished our courses, like on a Friday and exams would start on uh, Monday morning, I got a message, oh, come on up to uh, see the superintendent of schools in that area and the school principal, and we'll finalize uh, your contract. I was all excited, you know, and, <laughs> and back then the teacher's contract was thirty six hundred dollars a year. And we is a lot of money back. It was a lot of money back in back in 1968. I always say, look, the price of a Mustang was seven was eighteen hundred. So <laughs> that's just, you get two Mustangs for that salary. So I said, I'm okay. gonna get myself a car for sure. But uh so then I went to the principal's I mean their office next morning on a Saturday morning and I said, uh okay. he said, how are you doing? I said, Great. I said, well organized. My- my course load is my courses I have to teach. They're all, I got them all organized. and I'm ready to go. And uh, see, because school starts in that area mid about the third week of August oh, because wow. of the potato break that they would have. And so I said, Oh, and school would start at that time. And I said, Yeah. And I said, So I'm looking forward to it. I just have to write my exams now, but I think um, I'll do all right. And so they looked at each other and I said, Well, we have a bit of a problem. I said, Oh, what's the problem? He says, well, we're not sure whether you should teach here in Victoria up in Plaskar. I said, Plaskar Rock. I Rock. That's 25 miles away. I said, you know, <laughs> I don't know teach right here where where I, I could stay under reserve and the mm-hmm. kids from the reserve get bus there. So they said, well, this is where I think we might have a problem. I said, well, what's the problem? He says, well, discipline the kids and all that. I said, well, they're teaching us in school law. We can't touch the kids anyway. So it's up to the school principal. There's a the disciplinary problem. He said, go and see the principal and and whatever's done there, is done. So he said, well, we have a few other concerns. I said, oh, what are they? He says, well, we're not sure. You're living in the community. You're teaching there. I said, I'm, I'm sorry. You're telling me that because I live in Tubic and the kids go to school on Tubic that I should not teach at Southern Victoria? Well, not quite like that. <laughs> Something like that. This kind of thing. I said, well, I'll tell you what. I said, I have a friend. Village of Aruistic, which is cross river until we first nation, you know. And uh, he's, at, he's at summer school, and he's going to teach also some science courses here. And their students go to Southern Victoria. Did you tell him that he couldn't teach there as well uh, because, because he lives in the village and also because he uh, the kids are there? No response other than red faces. I said, well, okay, I see what you're trying to tell me. And he, he said, no, oh, it's not what you think. I said, it doesn't matter what I think. I'm not going to teach for you in Plaster Rock for sure. I'm not going to teach for you in Southern Victoria either. And so I got up to leave. And so the principal, well, no, just a minute now. He says, you, you shouldn't you shouldn't be that upset. I said, well, upset. I said, why am I upset? Because I, I don't want to teach for you. I said, no, we'll do something else. He says, well, what are you going to do? I said, well, listen, don't worry about grade nickels. Great Nicholas is a survivor, right from grade one. Yeah. <laughs> I said, So I'll I'll find something else to do. What the heck, you know? And uh, and uh so I got up to leave. Oh, I was really upset. My goodness, I was upset. But anyway, yeah. So then I left, and that weekend my roommate and I got together and they said, "Great, uh, how did it go? Where's the contract? I said, No contract. Because I had told the principal, I said, You have to find a teacher within three weeks because school starts then. And so uh, my roommate said, Graydon, uh, we've talked so much and commiserated so much, I guess we missed the uh, uh, supper hour at the UNB uh, diner. Uh, and, and so he said, let's go up to St. Thomas. I had never really been to St. Thomas, uh, the same, same area. He said, they have a better cafeteria there. Let's go up there. So we did. And when we walked past the library, Harry Dervin Library, and up towards St. Thomas, I saw this building. I said, "Holy cow! What's that building?" He said, "That's the law school." I said, "That's the law school." I said, "Wow! I wonder how you get in there." So when we went to had our supper next morning, looked my exam, and then after in the afternoon, I went over to the building, brand new building, great big building, and I asked this guy. I said, "Look, this is law school." Yeah, it is. I said, "Well, how do you get in here?" He said, "Well, you have to, you know, how do you, <laughs> you have to apply and all this stuff." I said, "Okay, all right." And you have to have a degree. I said, "Well, I got a degree." Well, we just don't accept anybody. I said, "Well, why not?"
0: <laughs> he says
1: well you know your marks have to be good and all that stuff and I said well yeah I majored in mathematics and science so that should be good enough <laughs> but anyway he says I'm not in charge of admission anyway so uh he gave me the number of the guy in charge of admission I called him that night and I said look I understand you're responsible for admission of law school he said yes I am who are you so I told him who I was and where I was from he said gee, we've never had an Indian go to law school here before. I said, well, I'm not applying because I'm an Indian. I'm looking for something to do with me. It doesn't work out. So I'm looking at alternatives now. So he said, well, he said, um, your law school, uh, we're going next. There are over 300 people who have applied to HETIO for first year. And we want to accept at least 100. Uh, so in the summer of 1968, Pam, this is, you know, when you stop and think how Peter looks after you, there was a terrible mail strike in Canada. Nothing moved. This was the day before the modern means of communication we have now. He said, as far as we're concerned, all those applicants, 300 ahead of you, haven't told us they want to go here. We haven't been able to tell them they're accepted here. So as far as I'm concerned, get your application in here and you stand as good a chance as any of them. So I had to send for my marks, my boss, eh, from, from wow. <laughs> I filled the form out and in a week I was accepted that's that's i mean what are the odds of that Somebody going to law school as <laughs> law school opening in two weeks after that so that's how i entered law school there was no burning ambition believe me on my part to be a lawyer and uh so when i started law school i got completely new discipline i had no idea who made law who judges were and all this stuff because i had no interest i hadn't mm. it didn't matter to me who, who was what so as long as you stayed uh, behaved yourself, you didn't have to go see a judge or something. <laughs> and so, but it was a great learning experience for me because the methodology of thought for math and science is similar to law, uh, and uh, so it, I loved it. I liked it. So that was quite a thing for me. Mind you, it was a very uh, steep curve I had to learn because I knew nothing about say political science. I really knew very little about history. And, uh nor the government how the governmental systems function but I had no idea but i learned and so that's how i got to law school and uh, uh it was quite an experience um, uh, I, I i think for me the uh uh after my first year law oh i gotta tell you this thing just sometimes go all over the place but uh, what happened is in the spring around toward the middle of march when the end of March, when you're getting ready for your exams at law school, I opened up the morning paper, Telegraph Journal. Looked at this article Imposter hired at Southern Victoria High School. That was the headline. And they had hired an imposter when I accepted his credentials. And he was a fraud, of course. You know, he was <laughs> using somebody else's identity. And I'm laughing as I'm reading this article. And my friend says, what's going on? What's so funny in the newspaper? Are looking at the cartoon page? I said, no. I said, look at this story. He said, what is it? I said, look, if there was such a thing as poetic justice, here it is. You know, so. <laughs> and uh, anyway, after my first year law, I, uh, I had the opportunity to participate in a research project. Eventually, the book that came out is called Natives and Law. The first publication of its kind in Canada at the time. Uh, trying to use the American model of federal Indian law in in a smaller form. And so uh, because I was from New Brunswick, I was assigned, and probably because I was Catholic, they assigned me three major areas of responsibility. One was the initial contact between the Spaniards and and the Americas, primarily in Central America and Mexico. Secondly was the deal with land claims, and also dealing with treaty rights. So those are the three areas that I was worked, assigned to work on. So wow, what, did my mind ever expand? I said, "Oh, first of all, I never realized about this uh, relationship with conquistadors in Spain and all that, and the role that the Catholic Church would have played back then." And uh, I had no concept of what a treaty was, and uh, I heard I'd never really heard that much about land claims. So, but anyway, it was an immersion for me, and and. What I, uh, what I learned from that summer continues to mark me right to the day. And not only what I teach, but what I still continue to read. So that's the background of law, you know. And outside of that, the, the second best thing that happened at law school was I got married after my first year. So, uh, so that was, that was good. Too. It settled me down as a student, I can tell you that. You know? uh, less time playing hockey, less time with forcing around with the guys. And, uh, so no, I did. Yeah. I had to, I had to, uh, uh, mature overnight.
0: (laughs) Oh my gosh. Well, you you would. And, And just to be learning all of this stuff for the first time, like, you know, sometimes non-Native people think that we just inherently are born with all this knowledge that we can just rattle off, you know, word and form of all the treaties. And I know every Indigenous, you know, but it's just, it's not, you have to learn it somewhere.
1: Yeah, that's right.
0: And, uh, you know, for you to be learning, that that's amazing. So, I mean, you graduate from law school and then you become a lawyer. I mean, what was that like? Did you just walk by a law firm one day and say, hey, I wonder if I can work there?
1: Well, what happened What happened in New Brunswick at the time when I graduated in 71, actually, once you graduated and passed your exams, that was sort of like the requirement for bar admission. Mm-hmm. All you had to do was article for six months. So the, uh, the original person I was actually going to article with up in my area, Perth Andover, he got appointed as a judge. So then I approached this other judge uh, who used to have people representing uh, representing on our reserve. His name was Ted Duffy. He was in Grand Falls. So I went to see him, and I said, look, Mr. Duffy, you know, like I'm looking for articles. Is it possible for me to article with you? And he said, uh, yeah, sure. It'd be great to hear. You're from the reserve. Yeah. I said, geez, you must be the first one to finish law school. I said, well, yes, I am. But I never, you know, it wasn't, for me, it wasn't, uh, I never thought of it that way at all. So. But when you're in a small town and you're not too bad in sports then you get involved in the sports of the community like uh, you know i played senior ball and then i played uh, hockey as well as small as i am you know but it's a good thing in that republican league it was morally based on speed not on muscle because they were peeling me off the boards for sure but uh so you kind of uh you know, there's a there's a different atmosphere in, in athletics. We would travel throughout the province playing baseball, hockey was sort of like in that area of Madawaska Victoria County, uh, very, very very good, very competitive, and the team the teams are followed by their fans. And uh, so, anyway, so in November uh, I got admitted into to uh, the law society. You know, the ceremonies you have in the New Brunswick Court of Appeal and all that. So. So I went there and the headline in the paper next morning was uh, first Indian admitted to the bar. <laughs> <laughs> no, so this guy who used to manage our baseball team in Grand Falls, he'd always wonder, well, how come Graden doesn't drink? You know, like some of the other, I said, well, I said, I just don't drink, that's all. So when he saw that headline, first Indian admitted to the bar, he says, oh, no, you can go into a camera. <laughs> <laughs> I said, no, no, no. I said, I, I just don't drink. I said, I said, it didn't matter whether I was admitted to the bar or not. Except by, <laughs> so it, it, it was kind of humorous in that kind of way, you know. And uh, so I continued to work representing a lot of our people in our community and uh, and some very difficult cases. Um, I had also uh, run for a position of counselor in our community and I got elected as a band councillor wow. uh, in, in, in the government, you know, like. And that is another story I won't share with that one. <laughs> but anyway, so, uh, and you know, when you're, when you're articling, you don't make much money. And when you're starting a career in law, you, you don't, you make a little bit more. But, you know, I, I my wife and son, I said, geez, you know when am I going to make these big bucks? <laughs> so, so anyway, so, and it just so happened, uh, I got a letter from, uh, at the time it was called Waterloo Lutheran University in Waterloo now called Wilfrid Laurier now and they wrote I think to all indigenous graduates across the country asking them if they would want to come to Waterloo to study for a master's degree in social work and I looked at the thing and I looked at what they were looking for criteria my wife and I spoke about that because I was quite concerned with uh, the ones I was representing a lot of them just wanted to plead guilty a lot of them just want to get it over with, pay a fine, or what the heck, if I can't pay the fine, I'll go to jail on the weekend or something like that. There was absolutely no rehabilitation back then, you know, other than make sure you behave yourself. And uh, so, but I was I was kind of bothered by that. And I said, gee, you know, there's no probation officers that go to our reserves and all this, there's no, nothing there. So, so my wife and I spoke about it. I said, I asked, I said, look, do you mind if I, w- I go to social work? I said, to find out, the other dynamic: How come this happens to people? So, she was in full support of that. So, uh, so what happened is, I told the, I told the, um, the lawyer I was with. I said, "Look, I'm going to go study two more years at the university in Ontario," uh, and and he said, "Well, good." He said, "When you're done, you want to come back, and with law, you're more than welcome to be here." And uh, so um, it just so happened that the Union of New Brunswick Indians, which was in its early stages at the time, uh, had received a federal grant. They needed a lawyer to go talk about the Indian Act to the people in the community. Well, uh, my brother who was working there. He says, well, why don't you come work for us? And uh, and I said, well, I'm going to go to school in in the fall. He Well, well, this is just a grant. We've got to start using it. And it'll be, I'm sure you'll have it all spent the <laughs> <laughs> end of August when you, when you go to school. So I got there and uh, I moved to Fredericton. And uh, actually my wife was expecting our second child then. And so we settled in Fredericton and I took some courses at St. Thomas. Just what, you know, what the course in psychology, and sociology and statistics, all this stuff. Just so I would be prepared when I went to the fall. And then I went traveling to all the communities in our province, uh, and uh, talking about treaty rights, talking about land claims, doing some research for them, and uh, and then dealing with government policies a little bit, but not much. And uh, and people would say, "Well, gee, can you defend us?" You know. I said, "Well, yeah, I guess I could," uh, but because I was I was full time, I was full time as lawyer, i paid full time, so. There were no problems finding clients. <laughs> 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 People didn't have too much money and they couldn't afford lawyers. So I said, okay, I'll, I'll do what I can. So I got involved in the representation in the like family court. Back then the uh, family court was sort of like in a provincial court level. Child custody cases. And, uh, and then, of course, a lot of criminal offenses and offenses for like motor vehicle, liquor control, and and all this stuff. So, so uh, But then I, I went to university in the fall. And uh, that was another great learning experience. Uh, again, very limited courses I had heard about psychology, sociology, and human behavior, but I was kind of intrigued by it. And uh, what they did in Laurier at the time was uh, you would go to school four months, so sort of September to December. And in the winter semester, you were put in a field placement. And so uh, not far from Waterloo is Guelph Correctional Centre which is a, was a provincial institution, like a provincial jail for anybody sentenced two years less a day. And so I went, they wanted me to go there and because there were a high percentage of indigenous inmates at that, at that institution. So I went to go speak to the social worker there and the psychologist. And uh, they said, Oh yeah, we'd like to have you in here because the, the indigenous inmates would have somebody that they could really talk to. I said, Oh, okay. So, so I went there and, and uh, I, I, I tell you, wow, what a what a change for me to see. I mean, I had represented our own people in courts. Once they were sentenced, you never see them again until they're recharged or whatever. So I went in there and these young men came from all over Ontario and out of a population, prison population, about uh, 600 to 800. it varied time of the year. About 10 percent went in indigenous people from Ontario, from all over the regions. Uh, and so uh, I started out in social work, like as talking to them and all this stuff. But but then my supervisor says, I want you to go right into the actual cell block with these guys and get to know them so they can trust you. I said, oh, okay. I was nervous as old, <laughs> you know, <they> there. <laughs> but I did, I did. And uh, I was there two hours and it was kind of interesting the first night I was with them, like I, I as I said, uh, I was nervous. I mean, you know, I said, well, and uh, so when I went down there and they all gathered, you know, they're smoking cigarettes, telling stories, I suppose. So I'm kind of, I got up in the middle and says, who oh, are you? Well, I won't, I won't, I'll, they welcomed me in their own way, you know. <laughs> and I said, oh, well, my name is Braden. What are you doing? What are you in here for? Because sometimes prisoners get transferred in the middle of the night. I said, well, actually, I'm here to help you. Okay, when can we get out? (laughs) I said, well, uh, that's not up to me. I said, oh, I'm just here as I told them who I was. Oh, New Brunswick, where is that? So, But what actually broke the ice for us is it's a good thing I still had my language. And so the ones who were, uh, say, uh, Anishinaabe and uh, Cree or even like uh, Haudenosaunee, there are similar words that we have, so for about an hour and a half, we start sharing words. What's the word for this? Word for that? And there are a lot of common words actually we have. And, and then finally, the guy says, opens the door, unlocks the door, says, "Okay, Nicholas, time to go." You know. So, so anyway, I I told, "Hey, when are you going to come back to see us again?" I said, "Well, would you like me to come back?" Sure, we'd like to. You know. So, so all of a sudden, then. Uh, my uh, responsibilities changed. Rather than going to work at 8 in the morning and leaving at 4, my supervisor says, you come in at 1 o'clock and don't leave until 9. So we'd shift it shifted. And so I, I would spend more time with these guys, you know. And, and uh, so I got to know their stories, where they were from, the difficulties they were in. I didn't dare tell them my career. I had a lot of because They'd say, "Well, this lawyer wasn't no good. The judge was even worse, and all this stuff." So <laughs> I don't think they ever knew I was. I never told them I was a lawyer. I know that. So, uh, so then, as it happened, uh, I could understand then uh, the nature of sentencing when you're sentenced, when, how, how your time, and about rehabilitation. And I, I realized the many barriers that are there as well. But these young men, I. They were very, very good, well behaved. And they said, well, can you supervise us? I said, well, what? so we'd like to play floor hockey, but nobody wants to supervise us. I said, well, let me ask the authorities if I could. I said, where do you play floor hockey? She said, gymnasium. I said, oh, okay, all right. So, I mean, I wasn't acquainted with all the surroundings. <laughs> so then I went to approach, I said, yeah, sure, get him. And these guys are muscled up and strong. I mean, they don't back down from one another. So I said, okay you go play floor hockey they're rough and tumble i'm just gonna sit on stage and i said but i'll tell you one thing don't shoot that ball at me <laughs> if you know, that'll be the last night you'll have this thing so they were very respectful that way and so they just played what two and a half hours or whatever it was and then there was all time to go and that was just on a certain night a week and then they said well could we they have some musical instruments could you arrange us to We'd like to learn how to play the guitar. I said, oh, okay. All right. So I asked the authorities and they said, well, we really don't have anybody who can instruct them in guitar. I said, well, back at the marriage students' corners in the water lower, I go, I know a guy there who, who knows how to play guitar. I'll ask him if he would like to come and teach these guys. So I approached them and they said, geez, I don't know. I said, no, listen, let's, let's I'll be there with you. Don't worry. Just you're no help. I said, <laughs> "I said, no, don't worry. They'll they'll, they'll they'll respect you. So and I said, plus you get a chance to earn some money, which is pretty good for any student, right? And so he came with me. And I'll tell you, I never saw so many young men, so uh, so gifted to play guitar and make songs and sing songs. Wow! So that wasn't that was amazing, incredible. So that was that was another night. So you play floor hockey <laughs> music, and then after a while they said. Um, is it possible for us to have visitors here? You mean like family? I said, gee, some of you come from many areas. Said, well, no, it'd be good. And uh, I think at the time in Ontario, there were these friendship centers which were located like in London, Kitchener and uh, Hamilton and Toronto. So I said, well, let me see what I can do. Can you have to go through the uh, bureaucracy? And they finally said, yeah, okay. So. I said, okay, I'll invite a group." First first of all, it's from Toronto. And uh, I said, okay, so, and I told the guys, I said, look, all right, they're all women. I said, so you have to make sure that, first of all, you behave yourself, you you respect them and no foul language. Any of that stuff happens, uh, again, the authorities have told me, look, it'll stop quick. And geez, you talk about well-behaved gentlemen, I can tell you, but it was good for them because through these members of the Friendship Center, they could communicate with their families because they wanted to let their families know where they were. Their families probably didn't even know where they were. What, how are they doing? And, and that was, I'll tell you, that was amazing. And so each week we'd get different, different uh, uh, members of the uh, uh, Friendship Centers come. And that was socializing. In other words, they would have contact with the outside world. So then all of a sudden uh, the spring term is done and I have to leave. So, but I enjoyed that very much. I learned so much about um, these young guys. Uh, I didn't look at them as inmates anymore. They were human beings just like I am. sometimes. Unfortunately, they made unfortunate mistakes, but you know, they're paying the price for that. And uh, not that much help at the time was given to them for actual rehabilitation other than you know, uh, we'll protect society by taking them off the streets. But that had a dramatic impact on me later on when I was a judge, actually, in 91, uh, when I would send somebody. So anyway, so that was it. And uh, spring terms, five weeks or whatever it was, and then I came back to New Brunswick to work some more. And uh, again, I'm glad because I had a chance to earn some money uh, dealing with the same thing or what I did before, Indian Africa and all these research that were going. And then in the fall, I was actually sent up to a place called Waboden, Manitoba uh, to deal with the young, young students who did not want to go to school uh, in grade eight because they would have had to leave their communities. So I was sent there. It was a Métis community and some indigenous communities as well along what they call the, 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 the Bay Line, they call it, because it was just a railroad track that would run through their communities. And so I would go into these communities, meet with these young, young men, young young boys, young girls, I guess, grade eight, and 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 I would just say, well, look, you know, uh, you want to stay in your community, then, you know, spend as much time as you can with your elders. Um, It's a darn good thing I never recommended them to go to schools because they still would have had residential schools in those areas, either at DePa or elsewhere, and. you know, when you think about after the devastating uh, consequences that took place, was, there was no knowledge really of that at the time, uh, at least not, not as public as we have it now. So, but I was there four months and uh, I had a chance to go to uh, different Northern communities. Like I remember going to Norway house one time for, for a meeting and, uh, uh, and this is when I saw a traveling court. You know, the, the court would come into the community in the plane would be a judge, prosecutor, uh, legal aid, the prisoner, the RCMP, and everything. Everybody flowing to the community, and I was at another. I was happened to be staying at the same hotel as the, uh, as uh, the uh, people involved in the administration of justice, and uh, they probably had a maybe a cell, maybe or something like that. I imagine for the ones who were accused. Uh, and so I was hoping, oh, oh, gee, that's something that they fly everybody in here and have a wow, that's that's a, in my mind. I'm thinking, gee, this is amazing. And uh, speaking of New Brunswick, right? <laughs> so, so then uh, I was finished there in December 2000, 2000 no, in 19, uh, 1973. And then the winter semester was um, 1974. And, and uh, actually, I had a job lined up with the Ontario Correctional Services. Because uh, by then, after I graduated, I had a master's in social work and a law degree, and they said we need somebody at the uh, at this level to help shape policy or work. In this. Well, let me consider it, you know. And and, and it just so happened that uh, my brother, who was who was a chief um, from uh, from my uh, community, uh, said uh, he came up to see me in Waterloo, my brother Dennis, you know, and, and said, "Oh, what's going on?" Not often you have a brother come from that distance come and see you. <laughs> he said, well, I want you to come back and work for us and on the reserve. I said, oh, well, what? He says, I need legal advisor. I said, oh, what's going on? He said, well, uh, we have a major land claim for our community. And uh, the minister at the time was jean crechen if you can believe that. Anyway, Jean-Claude Chen finally said, okay, we will give money to the community so they can begin to prepare for their land claims. And I said, yeah. I said, well, my wife said, yes, we've going to, to New Brunswick because it's originally from St. John. And so I had to tell the Ontario people, no sorry, like that, that. We're going back home. Uh, and uh, so we settled in Predicton. And so I started working with our community as a legal advisor and all that stuff and looking at all the different land issues in our community. It wasn't just the land, land There were other, other, like there was hydro lines and, easements that were never looked after and all this stuff and so I said yeah I can handle this well I think it was about three weeks into the actual program uh my brother said uh, uh, gee you know the money we were promised from the government is not going to come forth." I said why he said well they don't like the fact that I hired my brother who was a lawyer you know I said, well, I said, I suppose there's a federal regulation for that. I said, that's okay. Don't worry. I mean, I'm, I'm in Fredericton. I've got two professional degrees, social work and law. Surely to goodness I can find jobs in one of these things. And uh, and I, it, But he felt really bad, you know. I said, don't feel bad. I said, look, you know, uh, my wife's happy. Her, her, her parents are not that far away, and uh, our kids are getting settled in. And I said, no, I don't worry about that. I'll be okay. Then I'm thinking, oh, geez, what am I going to do? <laughs> <laughs> well, that was on a Thursday, and that following Friday afternoon, I just happened to be going for a coffee, and I met a friend. I used to. I, he was the guy who was managing the program and uh, writes and treaties and doing research. He says, oh, how's it going? I said, well, he was going pretty good until yesterday. So I explained to him the situation. He says, well, you're lucky, he says, we're just going to get a huge grant from the uh, federal government, it's the rights and treaties uh, research program that they're doing. And he says, we need a lawyer. I said, oh, you are? Well, geez, here's one right now. <laughs> so that's how I got this job. I'm uh, starting Monday morning. And, uh, and then, of course, what, from there, 1974 until I left in 1998, that's what I did, uh, dealing with all, all of our rights in our province. Dealing with hunting, fishing rights, trapping rights or treaty rights, some land claims, uh, some family court cases and from youth court cases—that all that stuff, you know, it was, plus being a political advisor. <laughs> I'll tell you, it was, uh, uh, again, you know, because you're a lawyer full time, everybody thinks, okay, hey, we got a lawyer, you know, so I got this case or that case. <laughs> so uh, anyway, it was a very rich experience for me. And uh, I loved it. I love that uh, I like to work hard and whatever I learned in law and all this stuff. And actually, the beauty of social work that was being trained to be an analyst of public policy, writing public policy, looking at background material, research on this and that of policy. So, so that really trained me really well. And um, so I, I don't know I enjoyed it very much. It was just at the end. I uh, Back then, they would call it burnout. But I think I just... I was saying, gee, you know, uh, I'm working like crazy. Uh, you know, my um, my wife, she she was uh, she was a lawyer as well later, and our sons are by now they're almost finishing high school. So I said, well, you know, I guess I'm, I'll see what I, else I can do. That's that's what it was, and uh, I end up going actually uh, at Saint Thomas University, which is probably where I was working full time with the university in uh 19 i started in january 1989 until 1991 when i got that call to be a judge so if uh but i started teaching courses at st thomas actually in 1984 83 84 i'm trying to remember which year uh because they did have a native studies program and uh i was the only one who could who was asked organize a course on indigenous law well called natives and the law one and of law yeah. Two, yeah. land claims so so I got a chance to create those courses and then teach part-time. But the thing is, I had to teach part-time at nighttime because um, busyness of work. I, it was sort of like Monday nights, 7 o'clock till 10, kind of a thing, you know. which is kind of, uh, as I think of it now, boy, that must be harder on the students. <laughs> but but that's, that's how it worked out, you know. So it was a very enriching uh, uh, path, actually. And I, I lo- and I still love teaching. I'm still teaching even now
0: no and it was it, I benefited from it because you were teaching just at that period when I was in my native studies degree and I was pregnant with my first son so all I had to do was just study and be a keener and I would come to class in the evening and you would come in with your grocery bags full <laughs> of papers and handouts to hand out some of the grocery bags looked like they'd been used a hundred times <laughs> but you were like oh waste not want not so every night and we'd have these most amazing discussions about the law. And you were just, you were so good at it. You were just so good at relating to people. And you really inspired me. I thought, wow, he's not at all what I pictured lawyers were. Because to me, (laughs) you know, lawyers were intimidating. You only saw them when people were in trouble. They were usually with the police. You know, it was so, it wasn't a good thing. But you were just, and I learned, and that's why I learned, A whole bunch of things that I didn't know before either you know like land rights and the Indian Act and constitutional things you know related to Native people and I was just like how could I have not known that because I came from an activist family who's very organized but you just can't know everything so I, I feel very lucky that in that little time period um you know I got to take that class from you and you were the one who said you know right before I went to have my son, you were like, you know, you should really consider law school.
1: <laughs> well, you're a great student, you know, and uh, I've had a number of students I encourage a long way to do that. And uh, I, I'm not sure if I would have shared with you my experience in Geneva.
0: I could literally listen to Graydon's stories for days and days, but I think this is a good place to leave part one of our super extended podcast with the Honorable Graydon Nicholas. He left us in suspense with what happened in Geneva, so make sure you stay tuned for part two of our podcast next week so you don't miss the rest of the story. And thank you all so much for liking, commenting, and sharing these podcasts. It would also be super helpful if you went on to Podcast Addict or Apple Podcasts or any of the podcast apps that allow you to rate the podcast and leave a positive review. Till next time, keep living a warrior life. Walalia.